Hey, Harvest, thank you guys for uh, tuning in and joining with us online. Um, if you're watching with us either on Saturday night or uh, Sunday morning, kind of during regular service times, special welcome for um, for you. It's kind of fun, even though we can't get together uh, physically and uh, gather to worship and hear from God's word. It's been uh, unusual, but also good to at least be able to worship with you guys online. So if you're watching on Facebook or if you're watching uh, from our website, just through Church Online and that program, a special welcome to you. Uh, shout out to those who've been participating in the comments. That's encouraging to us as a staff as well. And if you need prayer, if you just wanna fill out a friendship register, give us a prayer request, that's a great venue for you to do that as well. If you are um, watching Sunday morning and you're just waking up and you really haven't got out very much or turned on the news yet this morning, let me give you a little bit of an update of what's going on, things that you need to know, um, COVID-19. And uh, we are still in this stay-at-home phase. If you step outside this morning, two words, polar vortex. And I thought we were done with those words, at least for those this year. I was somewhat hoping that those would be two words that were stricken from the English language. But here we are in May, um, potentially looking at snow this weekend. And um, in sports, not a lot going on. ESPN is talking about uh, Michael Jordan from 20 years ago and replaying uh, the Collegiate Cornhole Championships from last year. So please don't tune us off to go running over to that station. Um, in politics, uh, the Democrats are bickering with the Republicans and the Republicans are blaming the Democrats and vice versa. And I'm not paying attention to the details, but know that that is going on in our world as well. So in essence, not a lot of great news to share from our world news this morning, but I do have some good news for you guys. Don't forget this morning um, or this Sunday is uh, Mother's Day. You don't wanna miss that, guys. Call your mom, uh, praise your wife, make sure that the kids are on top of that. But to help you celebrate that, what we're gonna do is this week on Tuesday and Wednesday in the afternoons from three to seven at both campuses, we have a gift that we wanna give to the women in our church. It's a devotional that uh, the staff, wives, and women have put together. It's a 31-day devotional that is written entirely by the women of Harvest. And I think uh, the women in our church will really enjoy that. And then Kristen and I have been working on for the last couple of years, a book that has just come hot off the press as well. It's called The Marriage Wheel. We're praying that God will use it to encourage you in your marriage and to strengthen and marriages. Those will also be available at both campuses on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon for free from about three to seven. So if you guys want to pick those up, that would be um, great. So that's some good news on top of what is a lot of bad news, but let's get to the really good news, the best news. And I would just have you open your Bibles to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the 46th chapter. Cal kicked off a series last week entitled Because God Is, and then we study one of the attributes of God. It says, I am or I can be. It's how we respond to the attribute of God that we're studying. And this week, the big idea, what we're gonna be looking at is the fact that God is all-knowing. And the big idea is this, because God is all-knowing, I can stop binging. So let me kind of get this into context. Maybe a lot of you know what binging means, but especially in this season where we've been staying home, it's been very easy for me to fall into patterns of binging. Um, this past week, uh, my wife and I have been binge watching a short little series on uh, the Branch Davidians and David Koresh uh, in Waco, Texas. And um, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but if you haven't seen that show, uh, not a 
not a great ending. Um, so that's something that we have been been watching in the Wisen house. One of the things that I found over the course of this stay at home kind of season is I have been absolutely binging on carbs. And so what happens is I go to the grocery store and where I might normally as a treat pick up one coffee cake and kind of enjoy that. I've been picking up like multiple coffee cakes, three or four of these things. And I'm going through about one of these every other day. And as I picked it up today, I was bringing it here just even for the prop to show you guys. I started to open the wrapper. I'm like, oh, I can't open this and eat it right now. I got to wait. And then I read on the wrapper. I hadn't noticed this. It says this is 160 calories. So I'm like, that's not too bad. But if you read the fine print, it says per one eighth of the cake. So probably eating one of these every other day has not been the most healthy binging choice I have made. And then since I'm home more than I normally am. I'm not at the church office. My wife has been making me lunch and I've been binging on these things. Kristen makes me a sandwich and it's um, Swiss and turkey with mayo and mustard on a little Hawaiian roll. So this tends to be my lunch. She'll make me um, one or six of these and, and, and I'll eat these for lunch. And then also on the plate, she'll put my other favorite. These are kind of the staple, the honey barbecue Frito twists and I would just say that while I'm home during this season, that I am um, for sure binging on carbs. And I know that's got some of you more healthy people concerned. It's like, do you have any idea how much weight you're going to put on? And I would answer, um, yes, I do. And uh, I am definitely going to need to get out after this thing. I mean, I'm probably gonna have to binge on some exercise to make up for my current binging. But this morning, even more than talking about just what we watch and what we're maybe binging watching on Netflix or what we're doing with our diet and how sometimes we fall into patterns of cravings and binge eating. I wanna to talk to you about um, the fact that sometimes with our appetites and with our hearts, we can also fall into patterns of binging as well. And uh, that can be way more dangerous than even what we watch or what we eat. And what you're going to see in Isaiah 46 is that the antidote to save us or to prevent us from binging on things that will not satisfy our hearts is understanding this idea that God is all-knowing. The theological term for that is that he is omniscient. So let's pick it up in Isaiah 46, the first verse. Look what it says. It says, bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Verse two, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So just the first point I want you to think about this morning as we study this text is this. Listen, God knows how life works. God understands how we're wired and he understands how life works. That word bell in the first verse, that is short for the God Baal. It's one of the chief Babylonian gods. The word Nebo, it's interesting. That's another Babylonian God, the God of wisdom. It's actually what King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon was named probably after that God. And it would be kind of natural for the Israelites as they looked at this nation, this Babylonian people, that they were superior, they were stronger. Babylon was the world power. And as they compared themselves to the Babylonians, it wouldn't be unusual for them to begin to envy them, to be jealous of their power and position and find themselves worshiping the gods of the people that they admired. Well, why would they do this? Well. 
They envied their success. They wanted to avoid conflict. They wanted to fit in. This is human nature, and as silly as it sounds, we do this all the time. We find somebody that we admire. We look at someone who has achieved the things that we want, and we begin to worship the things that they worship. This is kind of uh, the key behind advertising. Why, Why do young kids for the past two decades just really want to wear Air Jordans? Well, because they admire, they idolize Michael Jordan. This is what we see on social media. This is the basis for reality TV. This is powering this whole new influencer phenomena that you see across social media. But look at what it says in verse five. God responds to this idea that they are starting to worship Babylonian gods. And look what he says. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal or or compare me that we may be alike? And, And what God is reminding Israel, his, his chosen people is the fact that God, their, their God, Jehovah God, he is unique. He is calling out to a nation who is at danger of beginning to binge and, and, and worship other gods, other idols. Israel's been quick to forget that their God was the one that parted the Red Sea. It was their God that led them out of slavery in Egypt. It was the God of Israel that when Elijah showed up and he battled against the prophets of Baal, that all of the prophets could not summon fire from the skies and there sat Elijah pouring water on his idol and saying, what's wrong with your God Baal? Is he asleep? Is he too deaf that he cannot hear? And God has already defeated in mighty ways the gods that the nation of Israel are starting to gravitate back to and worship as they're exposed to this new superpower, Babylon. And just kind of as a reminder for us, when we're talking about idols, and in this passage, it's these two gods, Bel and Nebo. In our context, an idol is anything that we place our affections on to the place where our affections for that thing exceed our affections for God. It's not wrong for us to have affections for other things, but when other things, when stuff becomes the ultimate pursuit of our lives, the things that we value most, if if there is a person, a relationship, a, a item, anything that takes the ultimate affection of our hearts, well, that's idolatry. If there is something in our culture that we begin to focus on and we start to think like, I'll be happy when I can just get out of the house again, when I can start traveling and go on normal vacations again, if, if I could just go back to work, then I'd be happy. When the kids go back to school, when sports are back on TV, when we start to look at those type of things as the basis or the foundation for our happiness, we're, we're at risk, just like Israel found themselves in Isaiah 46, of falling into idolatry. If if I believe I cannot be content unless my paycheck hits a certain level or when I'm independent or when I'm healthy or when I lose 20 pounds, whatever that thing may be, if I don't believe that I'm going to be safe until there's a vaccine or a cure for COVID-19, I'm not gonna feel safe unless everybody is wearing masks and practicing proper social distancing or I won't feel safe when until things get back to normal. Listen, when God becomes our secondary source of our happiness, our contentment, or our security, we're falling into idolatry. 
And God's warning Israel, these things that you have placed your hope in, these false gods, they can quickly turn from idols to burdens. God's saying, listen, I know how life works. This doesn't end well. Verse six, look at what it says. Prophet Isaiah writes, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. Then they fall down and worship. Verse seven, they lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It can't move from its place. If one cries out, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And the imagery that Isaiah is using here is powerful. He's contrasting idols to the true God. And he's saying, listen, if you begin to fall into idolatry, you need to understand this. The very thing that you desire, that you set your affections on will eventually become a burden for you. The, these things that we place and give higher value to, to God, they, they, they can enslave us and that they are powerless to save or to satisfy our hearts. It's been interesting these last couple of weeks, just watching on Sunday nights, kind of the, you know, big Michael Jordan documentary, the, the last dance, this 10 part epic thing that people are talking about. Michael Jordan is portrayed in his college years as a guy who desired more than anything else to be the best basketball player in the world. And many would argue that he's achieved that goal. But in achieving the goal, what he did was he raised himself to a level of fame that he thought would make him happy. But the reality is the fame began to just crush his spirit. And, and if you watch tonight, what you're going to see is it reached a point where at the height of his career, he walks away from basketball, finding that the very thing that he thought would satisfy his heart, his ability, the level of excellence that he had achieved and the fame that surrounded it, it became a burden. He's like, I, I just can't take this anymore. I'm, I'm done. It's been interesting just watching the news this past week. There's a guy in the business world that I pay some attention to or get amused by. His name is Elon Musk. He owns uh, Rocket X and Tesla and a bunch of different companies. And, and this week was a busy week for him in the news. He had a baby with a singer Grimes and named him some name that is unpronounceable. It's just a random list of symbols. He came out early in the week and said that the price of his own company, Tesla, was overvalued, driving the price of the stock down only by the end of the week to realize that he had just earned a $700 million bonus for the price of his stock. He was working against his own bonus in the comments that he was making about his company. And then also this week, he came out in the press and said, I'm tired of owning anything. I want to be a man without possessions. And so middle of this week, he listed two homes for sale in the same neighborhood in Bel Air, one for 10 million, one for 30 million. Now before you feel too sorry for this man selling his homes, you need to know he owns six in that same subdivision. It's true in our news today, as you look at successful people believing that the success would satisfy their hearts. And sometimes as it became their idols, it fails to satisfy. This has always been true. If you look at the great industrialist, it was um, Henry Ford who said, I was happier as a boy working in a mechanic shop. Andrew Carnegie said, the management of this much money brings my heart no joy. John D. Rockefeller said, it's just too great a load. There's no pleasure in it. John Astor, one of the great industrialists said, I'm the most miserable man on earth. And, and, and I, 
don't want you to come to the conclusion, well, are, are you trying to make me feel bad for all of these rich people? Because that's really hard for me to do. You need to understand this, that idolatry is not just a problem for those who have wealth. It's equally a problem for those who believe that wealth will satisfy the longings of their heart. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 6, we read this, he writes, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing, hear this, in all that he desires. Everything that this man desires, God has allowed him to achieve. And then it goes on and says, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. It's been said um, by a philosopher, I believe his name was Nietzsche. It's, uh, he said, possessions are usually diminished by possession. Let me say that again. Possessions are usually diminished by possession. The things that we believe that if we could just get this, it would make us happy. Once we have them, they don't provide the happiness that we believed that they would or that they promised. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. You are, if you are not content with what you have, you will not be satisfied if it were doubled. And what God is saying is he's saying that thing that you long for, that thing that you believe will satisfy you, ultimately what you're looking for is me. I understand how life works. Let me, let me say that another way. Until God becomes your primary pursuit, you will never be satisfied. God understands and he knows how life works. Here's the second thing about God being all-knowing. God knows how we're wired. Jump back up to verse three. Look at what it says. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. To the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Look at the contrast that's being painted by the prophet Isaiah. He's making fun of the idols that Israel is choosing to follow. And it's saying, listen, they're a burden to you. You're carrying them around. You're caring for them. And all the while, our God is the God who made you. He knew you from eternity past. He's been there before you were born. He was there at your birth. He will carry you. He will save you throughout your entire life. Isaiah, quoting God, he says, I will carry, I will bear, I will save it's interesting, um, sometimes life is circular and some of the things that you remember about raising kids, you're reminded of as you watch your children raise their kids. My youngest son, Christopher, he has two boys and they are five and two and he just had a new um, daughter born just in the past few weeks. And he was taking the boys over the course of this last week and he had got him, he was really excited. My son loves golf and he had bought his two sons some uh, small sets of golf clubs, just kind of starter golf clubs. And he was hitting with the boys in the backyard. And then later this week, he kind of took them up to our cottage and was having them hit golf balls around up there. And he was trying to teach them how to grip a club and how to swing and how to stand. And it was interesting, after a little bit of this, his five-year-old kind of looked at Christopher and said, hey, you're not the coach, you're the watcher. Quit being the coach, you're the watcher, because he was tired of receiving the instruction. And um, I don't know if that is 
frustrating or funny as you hear that, but he's five. Ben's just five years old and he is determined in his heart that he will not take the instruction of his father, that he's gonna figure this out for himself. And I would tell you that very often that is the very same thing we do. And God is saying, listen, I know how you were wired. I'm there for you. I want to save, I want to carry, but so quickly we forget. Here's a third thing. Because God is all knowing, his knowledge assures his agenda. Look at verse eight. It says, remember this and stand firm and recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old for I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Because God is all-knowing, we can be sure that when God says something, it'll happen. Only God, he is unique. Only God can give this guarantee because only God is all-knowing. Hey, hey, here's a fact I think we just better come to grips with. We are not all-knowing. We might know some things, we might know a few things, but only God can claim to be all-knowing. He is unique in that ability. One of the things that's been really hard for me in this season even as I'm one of the elders at the church and we're trying to lead this congregation well and we're watching the news and trying to figure out how to restart our services together, I I have just been forced to say more often than I'm comfortable with, I don't know. When are services gonna start? I I, I don't know. Um, What is this gonna look like? I'm not sure. And trust me, I I wanna lead well and, and I wanna be informed and, and these words like, I don't know, they, they might not be as tough as will you forgive me, but they're close for me because it's just hard to have to admit that we don't have all the answers. But God is saying, I'm all knowing. And because I'm all knowing, the things that I say will happen. Look at verse 10. God says, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east or a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Sometimes as we work our way through life and we kind of look at our different circumstances and maybe some of our past circumstances, there's times that we can kind of see God's fingerprints and maybe catch a glimpse of of what he's doing and why he's brought us through different storms and different seasons in our lives. Sometimes we understand and as time goes on, we can look back and see how that unfolds. For me, even in this season of staying at home and life being so disruptive, I can acknowledge that God is teaching me to to trust him, to to take rest in the fact that he is all-knowing. I'm reminded once again that God will build his church, um, that God is in control of this situation. I, I'm, I'm reminded that I need to slow down to, to appreciate things day to day, not always be rushing and planning so far ahead. But sometimes we can see some of the things that God is doing, but sometimes we just don't have a clue and uh, we don't understand the circumstance of the storm that he has us in. Here's, here's what I would say. My perspective or my understanding does not impact the reality that God is all-knowing. And because God is all-knowing, he will accomplish his purpose. The, the questions in these seasons that are created for us is this, do we trust God? Do we believe not only that he's all-knowing, but that he's good? And so here's the fourth point. The third point, God 
God's knowledge assures his agenda, let me assure you of this, God's agenda is salvation. The idea that God is all-knowing is not always that comforting of a reality. Um, Every life has a closet. We are very used to wearing masks. And I'm not talking about what you're wearing as you go into the grocery store or into the pharmacy. And and in this season, we're wearing, wearing physical masks. But the reality is most of us are pretty, we're pretty good at wearing masks. We like to be known by our virtues, not our vices. And we work very hard and are very focused on our reputation. And this idea that an all-knowing, an omniscient God knows everything about us, that can be uncomforting. As a matter of fact, I would argue that your understanding of the gospel is reflected in how you respond to the truth that God is all-knowing. For for the unbeliever, that's the kind of thing that can keep you up at night, this idea that God knows everything, sees everything, knows your heart, knows your thoughts. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, this idea that God completely knows us and still chooses to love us and to care for us and to be with us, it's one of the most comforting truths in the human faith. David, in the book of Psalms, he he goes to God looking at the fact that he's all-knowing. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties. And our understanding of the gospel frames the way we view the fact that God is all-knowing. It says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Just look at those verses. So, So what is God accomplishing today? Well, His righteousness is near. His salvation is near. Even though he is all-knowing, even though verse 12 perfectly describes us, we are stubborn of heart and we are far from righteousness. In spite of our condition, God's agenda is our salvation. He is working his righteousness and bringing his salvation near to us. That is an incredible truth. It's not here alone in Isaiah 46. It says in Romans 8 that he is working all things together for the good of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It says in Philippians 1 that he will complete in us the things that he has begun. And I think sometimes we just have to be humble enough to admit that God has seen things from a perspective that we just can't always see. This last week, I think it was on May the 4th, may the 4th be with you that they think... um, Star Wars or Disney released another epic episode of this whole Star Wars saga that many of you follow. I'm not into it, I'll be honest. I'm not into sci-fi, but I think they did it on May the 4th for May the 4th or May the Force be with you. I thought that was kind of clever. But if I were to tell you after watching two minutes of a Star Wars movie that I understood everything that was going on in that whole alternate universe, in that whole saga, you would look at me and say, you're absolutely crazy. You can't figure it out in two minutes. Any more than I could meet any one of you, spend an hour with you and say, well, I've got that person completely figured out. Our perspective is limited. We are not all knowing. God is all knowing. He knows us good and bad. And yet he brings his righteousness and his salvation near.
So here's the last thing I would like to focus your attention on, the, the fact that God is all-knowing. How do we respond to that? Well, look at the text. Look what it says in verse three. The prophet Isaiah calls out to his audience. He says, listen to me. In verse 12, he repeats it. Listen to me. Our response, the first thing we have to do is listen. And this idea of being a, a good listener is not about how well we physically hear. I, not that she's ever said it, but if my wife were to say to me, wow, you're a really good listener, it wouldn't be that I hear well. It would be the fact that I'm hearing with intentionality. I'm valuing what is being said. I'm valuing who is saying it, that I'm learning. James goes further. He says, for us to listen involves more than just the hearing or the understanding. We've got to carry it forth into action. It says in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. We, we can't just understand that God is all knowing. We have to respond to that and it has to be understood. We have to listen and then we have to do. The second thing that you see repeated in the text, you see it in verse eight and verse nine is this idea, not just to listen, but to remember. It says in verse eight, remember this. It goes on and says, recall it to mind. Verse nine, remember the former things of old. Winston Churchill was the one who said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. That's a pretty cool quote. I actually like the quote from Proverbs 26, 11. It's a little bit more graphic for me. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. When we fail to remember how God has sustained us through our lives, if, if we can't look back over the story of our lives and see God's fingerprints and his sustaining power and the fact that he is all-knowing, Telling you what, we're going to be susceptible to following idols, to being seduced by other gods, by other desires of our heart. So first, listen. Second, remember. And then here's the third one. I think this is most important. Look at what the text says. It says, stand firm. Stand firm. So the big idea this morning is because God is all-knowing, I will stop binging. The idea is I won't chase other pursuits. I will stand firm. It's interesting, this is a command that is repeated throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel has parted or has left um, Egypt. They see the nation of, or the army of Egypt um, pursuing them. And they cry out in Exodus 14, they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Second Chronicles 20 tells the story of several nations uh, joining forces to fight against the nation of Israel and they are completely overwhelmed by their enemies. And God says this, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Philippians 4, 1, Paul has just told the Philippian church that their citizenship is in heaven. He's got them focused on eternity. And he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord. 
And in Ephesians 6, when Paul is describing for the Ephesians, this um, spiritual warfare, this invisible enemy that we are all fighting against. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He says, take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done it all, stand firm, stand therefore. I find it interesting that in James chapter one, verse two, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the evidences that we've actually been saved, that we've been changed by God, that the Spirit is working in our lives. And that word steadfastness, plain and simple, means that it's creating the ability for us to stand firm. So let me close by just saying this. How, how do we operate? as a church in this season that we're not able to gather. And, and in this season, I want you to know that I'm focused on the fact that God is all knowing. And here's something that I do know. I know how God's operated in this church in the past. And uh, as we've gathered to worship and his word has been proclaimed, God has used that to change lives. And then those changed lives have gone out and be it their family or be it their friends or their coworkers, there's, there's been such a change that all of a sudden the people that they're rubbing shoulders with say, that person has something that, that I want and they're attracted to come to our church through the testimony of the people that attend our church. And that doesn't stop in this season. I know that as a church in this season, we are called to have a different attitude towards this pandemic, have a different confidence and hope in this season to speak about our government with a different tone than the rest of the world, to have a confidence, a peace, and a hope that is attractive for the people that we come in contact with. And as it relates to when we get to meet together or what that looks like, here's the reality. I don't know, but I know that God knows. And because he's all knowing, and because God understands how this world works and how we're wired and that he will accomplish his agenda. And because I'm firmly confident that his agenda is our salvation, it's for our good. I don't have to fret tomorrow because we serve an all-knowing God. Let's pray. Father, we in this series would just like to um, lift high your name and praise you, not just for what you've done, but for who you are. And God, we praise that you are all-knowing, that you will accomplish the things that you say that you will do. I am thankful today that we serve a God that is not a burden for us, but a God that carries our burdens. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.